ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, I'm James Glenday, coming to you from Canberra on Ngunnawal Country. Welcome to This Week. The Matildas are on the verge of making history. They're hoping this weekend they can beat France and ride a wave of fan frenzy into their first ever Soccer World Cup semi-final. That tries to play a ball back again towards Caitlin Ford. Ford takes the ball in towards the end of the box. One on one with the keeper. Ford slides it home and Australia take the lead. More than three and a half million people on average tuned in for the Matildas win over Denmark, making it the most watched event this year. And supporters hope it's a turning point for women's sport. Oh, mate, insane. The best football you will see anywhere, any card, just brilliant. We're coming to the final. You can see them playing as a really cohesive team. With every win, it seems momentum just keeps building. I think the Matildas started with some nerves that come with playing in front of full stadiums at a home World Cup, but they've built into this tournament so beautifully. And I feel like now, instead of fighting against that wave of expectation, they're actually riding it into the quarterfinals. Neve Owens is a host with World Cup broadcaster Optus Sport. I was worried at the outset because I think in the lead up to the tournament over the last 12 to 18 months, we've seen some mixed and varied results. And we've heard from the organisation themselves that that's been part of the plan, playing top nations in the world to really build the depth that exists within this Matildas team. But it meant that there were losses along the Mm. way and there were some big losses along the way. So I was feeling nervous ahead of the start of this tournament, understanding the weight of expectation that exists. This is one of the most loved teams in what is a sports mad nation. So I felt a bit of nerves, a bit of anxiety for them. But I feel now like they're in this really beautiful place where they've built their way into the tournament, where they've owned that weight of expectation, they've embraced it. And I think they've really grown over the course Mm. of the last month. When Sam Kerr, who I think can be described as a genuine superstar, was injured and then Australia lost to Nigeria, I think it's fair to say some people thought, well, maybe the Matildas are done. What's impressed you most about the way the team has kind of recovered from that and then really dominated the past two games? The way the Matildas came out against Canada in Melbourne, the way the Melbourne crowd embraced the team and helped carry them, I think, to a a new height in this tournament was so impressive. It was a moment, I think, where those 11 players who were starting once again without their talismanic skipper, who, you're right, is a superstar in world football, that is fact, they were starting without her once again and they showed that in their own right, they are quality players who should be taken seriously and have skills that can impress and delight on the world stage. We saw a level of flow and fluidity going forward from the Matildas in that clash with Canada, who are no easy beats, James. They Mm. are the Olympic champions and there were high expectations for them coming into this tournament. 
and they really showed what they could do on that stage. But you know what? In that next game then against Denmark, where the flair wasn't there necessarily across the course of the 90 minutes, I felt like there was a maturity that perhaps we haven't seen from this Matilda's side in the past. There was a recognition of the task at hand and getting the job done, and they did it in this really steady, confident way that I think that game, that round of 16 game, that was the moment where I thought, wow, <laughs> they could win this thing. Right. I was going to put you on the spot. Can the Matildas win it? Do you, do you really think that? I think if the Matildas can beat France on Saturday night in Brisbane, yes, they can win the Women's World Cup. And this is an Australian side in both the men's and women's World Cups that have never made it past the quarterfinals. So mm. to beat France and take that spot into the final four in the world, that would be a history-making history moment in its own right. And then in the final four, perhaps a clash with England, if England can win their quarterfinal as well. But you would say on the slightly more open side of the draw that it is opening up, opening up for the home nation here. And on that tidal wave of support, yeah, I think the Matildas could be there on the 20th at Stadium Australia for the World Cup final. TV news bulletins are traditionally and generally the highest rating thing a free-to-air channel does during the day. And Seven News is often the most watched of all of them. But the bulletin is making way for the Matildas quarterfinal game. Is this a turning point for women's sport in this country? This is a huge moment for women's sport in this country and it is built upon a number of huge moments that we've already seen play out over the course of this tournament. We've already seen record numbers watching Matilda's games on free-to-air television, numbers that beat the previous AFL grand final record, the previous NRL state of origin records on Channel 9 and we'll continue to see that build across the remaining games in this tournament depending on how deep the Tillies can go. And I think that's a moment where, in a commercial sense, for potential advertisers, for potential investors in women's mm. sport, they're going to sit back and they're going to look at those numbers and think, what's next from here? Mm. Where should we be spending our dollars? Because the numbers now show the interest is absolutely there and it is just waiting to be tapped heading into the future. When we look at the draw, some big sides are already out. The US, Canada, Germany are done. Who are the big obstacles now left for the Matildas? What's their biggest challenge going to be? I think their biggest challenge is France. France are the world number four. Under Hervé Renard, they have built really beautifully into this tournament and they're a side that thrives on a little bit of momentum. If they score a goal in Brisbane on Saturday night, they can very quickly make it two in the space of a couple of minutes. They're a real confidence, momentum-based team and I think the Aussies will need to beware of that. So a win over France in the quarterfinal and I think confidence will really be sky high from an Australian perspective heading into that semi. But those teams you've just named, we're now missing three of the four former Women's World Cup champions. The only former champion that remains is Japan. And I think they are a powerhouse that remains. They've been playing incredible football throughout this World Cup. And they're one of the sides that 
is so beautifully balanced across the mm. field. They don't have a superstar who they rely on to score goals and to get them through to that next point of the tournament. They're a beautifully balanced side and they have an ability to change the way they play depending on the opposition that they're up against. So I think Japan could absolutely go deep. England are in this really interesting place where we've seen their brilliance at times throughout this tournament, but we've also seen them struggle to connect and just get the job done. And that's really important in tournament football as well, that ability to get three points even when you don't play your best or to win in a shootout to progress to the next round. Even when you've gone a player down, you're down to 10 players for over half an hour of that contest and you've got to do the hard yards to get the win. What do you hope is the legacy of this Home World Cup in Australia? I think in the aftermath of this Women's World Cup, we will see so many little girls and little boys signing up to play sport. But we also see a real shift where I know when I was at school, and James, I reckon it would have been the same thing for you. Those conversations in the playground, they never involved female athletes or female leaders. Mm. It was a, it was always about the blokes and about a men's World Cup, whereas now there are kids in the playgrounds right around Australia who are talking about these incredible footballers, not just female footballers, these incredible footballers who they are watching boss it on the world stage, in front of stadiums full of people. And that's a shift. And when we look at fast tracking and equal playing field in so many different areas of our lives, that mental shift in the way we think about things, that could have such a profound impact on the next generation. Neve Owens is a host with Women's World Cup broadcaster Optus Sport. Now, a vote on the voice to Parliament is drawing closer. And while it's always dangerous to put too much emphasis on opinion polls, public support for the voice appears to be slipping. And it's clear that if the proposal is voted down at a referendum in the coming months, there'll be no other form of Indigenous recognition on the table. The verdict of the Australian people in a referendum is something that has to be Uh, taken into account. A voice to parliament would be a permanent body that would advise government on policies that affect First Nations people. This time last year, there was a certain sense of optimism among the Yes camp as the Prime Minister used the Gama Festival to announce there would be a referendum. This year, things were more subdued. But away from the politics, how are Indigenous people feeling about the voice? After speaking to elders in different communities, whether you're a yes voter or a no voter or on the fence, I think the debate can be a strain. Carly Williams is a Kwandamuka woman and the ABC's National Indigenous Correspondent. Well, when I'm speaking to mob, people want to know how members are going to be involved with this voice, an advisory body that'll advise parliament and the executive government. They want to know how these people on the voice body will be selected mm. or elected. Like mob at the coalface uh, want grassroots people involved with the voice. And they say that they don't want just academics and politicians um, and mob in Canberra to be involved. So that's number one. The PM said at Gama that if this referendum fails, there, there won't be another option for recognition. And perhaps that's something politicians do when they want 
the nation to focus voters' minds, you know, on the actual choice they face at the moment. But were people at Gama surprised at all by this very firm stance that this is it? Mm, I think a lot of people at Gama agreed with him. This is mm. what they want. And Yes, when pressed by Insider's host David Spears, if there would be some kind of other recognition, uh, whether it be a legislated voice, so not enshrined in the Constitution, if the voice referendum doesn't get over the line, the PM rejected any other form than this advisory body written into the Constitution because he said that's what Mob called for in the Uluru Statement, voice, treaty, truth in that order. And that is what he is leaning on here, saying that he is listening to what First Nations people involved with the Uluru Statement want. The PM reminded people, though, that in 1999, Australia voted no in a referendum to break ties with the monarchy. And many Republicans didn't agree with the proposed model on offer and were squabbling about that. And the PM hinted that Republicans kind of lost their chance at cutting the monarchy loose there because they weren't 100% keen on that model on the table. He doesn't want that to happen with the voice. Uh, The Prime Minister said he's not focused on hypotheticals, won't even consider other ideas at this point, and that he's committed to the Uluru Statement. He wants this to win. Ahead of the vote, you've been looking back at the 1967 referendum. Uh, Remind us, what was that about? What was known as the Aboriginal question in the 1967 referendum was about should we count Indigenous Australians in the population, right, the census, and should the Commonwealth take control of Indigenous affairs and make laws for Aboriginal people? Up until that point, states and territories controlled Aboriginal affairs and the feedback was that they weren't doing a great job. A lot of people think that the 67 referendum was to give Indigenous people the right to vote. It wasn't. It was about including us in the census. That referendum was successful, famously. But of course, as in any vote, there were parts of the country that voted no. You've just visited one of those places, Bowerville in New South Wales. How are people there preparing for this campaign? Yeah, the New South Wales Mid-North Coast electorate of Cowper, which includes towns like Coffs Harbour and Bowerville, is really interesting because it returned more than 18% no vote in the 1967 referendum. So a heavy amount of people there did not want First Nations people included in the census. And when you look back at the ABC reporting two days after that 1967 referendum, the public explained why they voted no in the streets of Bowerville is quite confronting. I suppose it shows those outdated attitudes at the time. Mm. Um, So elders in and around the town of Bowerville um, who lived through that 67 referendum and lived through those racist attitudes are reflecting on lessons from the past as they grapple with the voice debate and wrestle with how they'll vote. And not all families will make the same decision. Nambaka councillor and Gumbungya elder Uncle Martin Ballangari, he's an OAM, recently held a local referendum talking time at the Bowerville Community Centre, just like a two weeks um, in the community hall there. He had art and cups of teas and slices of cake and um, people would come in and ask information about the referendum and, you know, have a little bit of a yarn about it. Um, and... 
his cousin, Auntie B. Ballangarry, she was holding her own events, whether public speaking or at the Yes 23 events, and, she, or, and she's also been doing yarning circles, a traditional ceremony where people can speak their minds without judgment, and she's also holding dinners. So there's a lot of, like, grassroots community um, events going on within this one big extended family uh, as they figure out how they'll vote in the coming referendum. And for those you spoke to who are voting yes, what, what's driving it? Well, Arnie B says 67 was about counting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but it was a half job in a way. So she wants to be enshrined in the constitution, not just counted. And she says her personal experiences growing up in Bowerville when the town was segregated is driving her to a yes vote. We were counted in 1967, and now we need to complete the story. She wasn't allowed the same medical treatment at the hospital. She was excluded from the public school there. She had to use a different door to get into the theatre to watch films and her non-Indigenous friends. She says Australia has come a long way since the 60s, but there's still a way to go, and this starts with constitutional recognition. And what about those who are against this or undecided at the moment? Well, going back to Uncle Martin Ballangarry from Bowerville, very openly told me he's a no voter. He said he's struggling to see how the voice or this advisory body would help grassroots disadvantage. He told me he suffered unimaginable loss recently. He's lost three adult children and he's sick of his people dying young. So how would a voice help close the gap of health, life expectancy and education with our people? Our trusts have been torn from limb to post, you know, because of not coming up with the goods to service my people. So the government of Australia has not impressed me yet. I might just add that Uncle Martin Ballangarry, after many chats with the community at his community event, he said he's sort of on this journey and coming around to the voice <laughs> to parliament and he's contemplating the future of his grandkids and his great-grandkids and he wants them to have a say in their destiny. And even though the voice may not be the perfect vehicle in his eyes at the moment, he's coming around to the idea. Mm. And aside from the referendum, there's a lot of issues going on in these communities at the moment. What are the other? What are some of the other things that uh, the Ballangarry family wanted to see fixed? And how much do they think the voice is going to help or, or hinder that? Well, they want a voice to be able to look at the issues that affect us mob differently, like shorter life expectancy, illness and addiction issues. Incarceration rates were mentioned. How do we fund grassroots DV programs that we know work? How do we fund those long term? Those are the sorts of issues that people have been telling me that they're keen for The Voice to have a look at, but also issues that affect all Australians. Like, how do we afford fuel for the car um, to get that one-hour-long right. trip to get groceries, you know, um, when gas prices are, are skyrocketing? And how do you afford to pay your power bill? It's a mix of everyday issues as well as those intergenerational entrenched disadvantages that we often don't have a choice facing. Carly Williams is the ABC's National Indigenous Correspondent. At the moment, it's not a great time to be a consultant. The federal government this week announced massive new fines for wrongdoing in the sector and pushed ahead with plans to reduce the public services reliance on the big four consulting firms. There were also new revelations about unscrupulous behaviour. 
Relegations, one of the country's biggest consulting firms, KPMG, has overcharged the Defence Department by inflating invoices and billing for hours never worked. The sector's been under scrutiny ever since PwC misused classified information to try to help multinational companies dodge new tax bills, a shocking scandal which raised questions about how consultants manage conflicts of interest. One way to think of it is a bit like a a, a seven-headed beast. The big four have all sorts of different faces and heads they bring to government. Stuart Kells is a Melbourne-based writer and an adjunct professor at La Trobe University. He's the co-author of the 2018 book, The Big Four. Well, if you look back at the dominant thinking over the last 20 or 30 years in government, it was all about efficiency and small government and the power of the market. And so, so the private quite, sector uh, being more efficient, for example. Exactly, and, and just generally less government. So it was ideologically congruent to have these functions provided through a you know service contract rather than through traditional public sector provision. Um, and so that has two implications. It means that the public sector is smaller and it loses capability, but also the providers get bigger. Uh, and um, that in itself creates a certain amount of inertia. Uh, and so what, what's happened over the last you know few years, if not the last couple of decades, is that provision through these consultants has become a very mainstream part of public sector delivery. Mm. In the past, it wasn't that uncommon for ministers to feel that maybe their policy goals and aims were being frustrated by public servants. There's, of course, a whole British sitcom, Yes Minister, dedicated to this exact concept. But in the real world, if you pay a consultant for advice on a policy you want to proceed with, as opposed to, say, using a public servant, are you more likely to get the answer, the advice that you want? Well, the big consultancies have come a long way from their professional roots, right? So they they started off um, with very high standards of integrity, a bit like law firms. Uh, they were ostensibly quite independent of government and um, their values were, were worn very much on their sleeve. And over time, as these businesses have grown and they've become more and more uh, almost hyper-commercial, um, they are quite ready to trade off revenue for integrity. So there is a risk definitely in things like advisory reports and other areas that, um, that, yeah, the consultants will tell the clients what the clients want to hear. Mm. And you can see why that's that's the case because it's very much in their incentive to get repeat work and uh, it's it's intrinsic to why governments look to the big four, right, to get tractable and um, aligned uh, advice and products. The really big concern about consultants, and this is not a new concern, is that these massive companies are also consulting big businesses like tech giants, banks, mining companies, and they're doing this at the same time that they're led into sometimes the inner sanctum of secret government decision-making that might unsurprisingly affect the profits of tech giants, banks and mining companies. So with that in mind, is there always going to be some level of a conflict of interest in this arrangement? I think you're 100% right. That conflict is really intrinsic to the structure of these businesses. They rely on various things that they um, structure inside themselves, like sterile corridors and ethical dividers. Um, But the reality is those things aren't very effective in preventing information from moving around. 
And so, yeah, there's, a, there's an inherent conflict when you're working, uh, on the one hand, for government, uh, say, for example, to support efficient taxation, mm. and at the same time working for um, businesses that are hoping to avoid taxation. And obviously we saw that on a grand scale with the PwC uh, tax scandal. Is it your view that maybe these big consulting firms in the future should be broken up, actually properly separated, so that we're not relying on a sterile corridor to reduce the risk? Absolutely. They need to be smaller. They need to be broken up into more specialised service lines. They've, they've pursued this um, sort of supermarket strategy over the recent last few decades. Uh, and as I said, they're, they're everything to everyone. Um, but that has given rise to an intrinsic uh, a conflict that really can't be resolved internally. It needs to be resolved uh, through structural change or through regulation. And fundamentally, if the, if the big four and the other major consultancies can't resolve those structural conflicts, then the solution ultimately is that governments should stop buying services from them. The big consulting firms work at all levels of government, but at a federal level, the Albanese government says its goal is to bring a lot of this consulting back in-house, back into the public service. For example, I think in the most recent budget, it planned to hire about 10,800 public servants and said that 3,000 contractor positions had already been converted with a lot of those in defence. This situation, though, has taken decades to develop. How long, realistically, do you think it'll take to unpick? And can it even be fully unpicked? Well, there's things that can be done relatively quickly. The public sector can stop looking to the consultants for generic, you know, non-specialist services and, and look back to, um, to traditional delivery for those things. We can do that right away. Instilling a stronger focus on value for money in procurement and holding the businesses much more to account for quality in procurement, that's something that can be done right away and built on over time. Something that will take a bit more time but, but is very doable is innovation in public sector capability. So things like creating different kinds of units inside government that are focused on evaluations or commercial expertise or whatever it is. So I think it's very doable. And then in the longer term, there's other things that can be done as well. Structural change, of course, as I said, but also looking at our system of um, corporate and financial regulation, because that is really one of the points that's failed in this um, this particular scandal that we're going through at the moment, some of the regulators and some of the oversight agencies tried to act, but they were hampered because they didn't have the resources or they didn't have the mandate or they didn't have the information. So we need to look at that complex as well. That'll take a bit of time. But right away, we can definitely change the approach to procurement and gradually the culture of procurement, and we can change the kinds of um, services that are purchased. It's often said there are always going to be some areas where consultants or contractors are required or even desirable, for example, in intelligence or defence is one. Do you believe that's true? And when you take a look at the public service as a whole, how much do you think the use of consultants should and could be actually fully scaled back? Well, I think we've reached peak consultant. Alison Kitchen, who was the, um, I think is still the chair of KPMG in Australia, in 2018, she remarked that uh, the the businesses, the the big four were growing at double digit growth year on year for five years. And that if they continued at that rate, they would essentially take over the world. They, They would be the economy and they would take over the world. Now that's unsustainable. And we said that at the time. So I think we've reached the peak consultant. There's a whole bunch of reasons why that's very timely. 
fundamentally we can't afford as as a, a community we can't afford this big sort of overpriced unwieldy privately lucrative apparatus but we also can't afford the the sort of soft regulatory framework that we've got over the top of it so i think we need to move into a new phase where we have much more specialized much more scrutinized delivery of private services to government a stronger internal capability within government and a more efficient and effective regulatory regime over the top of all that as well. So, yeah, I think uh, 2023, we'll look back at this year in history and say this was peak consultant. Stuart Kells is an author and an adjunct professor at La Trobe University. And that's the episode for this week. Subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Stephanie Smale, Marcus Hobbs and me, James Glenday. I'll be with you for the next couple of weeks. Catch you next time.